Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show, where we interview athletes, coaches, entertainers, artists, musicians, authors, and many more on both our podcast and YouTube channels. We discuss their upbringing, careers, and what they're doing today. We document the past so the future can remember. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share our programs. Got a guest you'd like to hear? Contact us and try and get them on the program. We have over 200 episodes recorded, so please enjoy. Stories can't be remembered unless they are told. Someone asked me one time how I get my guest ideas. It's easy. Those I've had memories of in my lifetime. In a weird sort of way, it brings closure to certain times in my life. A history major at Indiana State University, I feel it's my way of preserving history for future generations to remember. Welcome to the program. Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. I am your host, Billy Powell. Uh, you're listening to this on anchor.fm backslash KTNA. And of course, you're probably watching this on our YouTube channel, the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. Do us all a big favor and subscribe so you can get all of our content. Uh, I've had Coach Gene Cady on the show. I've had Coach Mike Woodson on the show. Uh, and as you guys can see, I have another legend on the show. This is like my trifecta of uh, Indiana coaching legends that have been on the show, and that's uh, Coach Digger Phelps. Coach Phelps, thank you for second, taking some time out of your busy schedule to help keep the nostalgia alive and talk about your basketball career. It's my pleasure, Billy. Coach, so I, I've read all about it, but how's Digger come about? <laughs> that's going way back into the history of growing up as an undertaker's son. My father was a funeral director in Beacon, New York, which is up near West Point in the Hudson River Valley. And uh, our junior high school and high school were in the same building. And yet we as youngsters always idolized the baseball, the basketball, and the football team. So in the eighth grade, I became bat boy for the baseball team. And we'd go up and down the Hudson Valley to Poughkeepsie and Kingston and Newburgh and Austin, Terrytown. And while the guys would be out batting practice before the game, I'd sneak back on the team bus and look in their lunch bags and eat their cupcakes and cookies. So on the way home on the bus, they would be beating me up in the back of the bus. Well, back in that time period also, there was a radio show in the early 50s, and one of the segments was Digger Odell, the friendly undertaker. So what happened, I'm yelling for the coach, Jim Garloff, to save me, and the guy's telling him what I've been doing. So he says, Phelps, if you don't stop taking those cupcakes and cookies, we're going to put you in one of your old man's boxes. Do you understand that, Digger Odell? And the whole bus laughed because they know about the radio show and they knew about the Digger Odell. Well, my name was Richard or Richie. And the next day in practice, is Digger Odell get the bats. Digger Odell, we need more water. Well, the Odell dropped and uh, the Digger stayed. When did you get introduced to the game of basketball? Oh, in our backyard growing up, uh, one of the neighbors had a basket in the backyard on their garage, and we play all the time. So that was starting early. And did you have a favorite team that you watched or listened to on the radio? Were you also a baseball, you were a baseball fan. What kind of a baseball fan were you? Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up in New York. We hated the Yankees. And the Giants were playing in the Polo Grounds, but I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up, and also a New York, New York Knicks fan when it came to pro basketball. 
And then West Point was down the river and we'd go down and watch Army play basketball um, on their campus. What kind of game did Coach Digger Phelps have as a youngster uh, and playing high school basketball? Uh, I was left-handed, so uh, didn't do much. I was maybe 6'3", played a little center, but nothing serious. And then I sat on the bench at Ryder College, and my job was to check out the visiting cheerleaders. You know, I always found it interesting because I wasn't a very good basketball player either, and I kind of do six degrees of separation with my guests. And my six degrees of separation with you is that uh, I went to the same high school that Stacy Turan went to that hit the 57 foot shot against Marion to go into the state championship game in 1980 at Broderfield High School. And of course, he went on to uh, play football at Notre Dame where you coached at Notre Dame. I know I'm stretching it. Well, I, you know, I, I just think that what happens to you in your life journey, I was studying to become a funeral director going business with my dad. So he wanted me to go to Ryder College in Trenton, New Jersey and get a business degree so that we could open up another business in the Fishco area uh, where IBM had new factories and plants worth people working. But what was more interesting is in the summer of 63, when I came home to wait to go to bombing school, Simmons School of Bombing up in Syracuse, New York, where my dad went, uh, Tom Winterbottom, a high school coach at Beacon, who was in his first year, he came in from Ohio and Beacon went undefeated, but he couldn't coach in the summer league, so he asked me to coach, and that's how it all started with me getting involved with coaching, and I would go up to the playground and we'd X and O on the court um, and go through offenses and defenses, and finally I got hooked on basketball, so I asked my parents, can I delay in bombing school and go back to Ryder? and get a master's degree so that I could end up uh, teaching and coaching and see if I like it and try it. And they said, go ahead. So while I was back at Ryder in graduate school, a guy named Tom Petroff, the baseball coach, he was a great coach, but a great motivator. And he became one of my mentors. Well, Little Ryder College that February was gonna play mighty NYU up at University Heights where they had not lost since 1944 home game. They lost in Madison Square Garden, but not at home uh, at University Heights. And this is 1964. So I scout them against Iona and Hoster, come back and tell the coaches, if we do ABC on offense, ABC on defense, we can beat these guys. And I said, Digger, you put in the game plan. I said, what? I said, yeah, you put in the game plan. So I'm out there with guys I played with the year before. And we put in a game plan and we go up and beat NYU, their first loss at home in over 20 years. And I said, I can do this. And this is how it all started. So I end up at uh, junior high school number four looking for a college assistant job. I write Dean Smith a letter and he hires some guy named Larry Brown, the Larry Brown, um, who played for him, but he ends up winning a championship in the NCAA at Kansas. He ends up winning the NBA championship at Detroit. So I end up at Little St. Gabriel's High School in Hazelden, Pennsylvania in 65, 66. But in October of 65, I write Eric Parsegan a letter to him. I love Notre Dame, that, uh, the essence of Notre Dame, and what he's doing as head football coach. Someday I want to do him in basketball. Well, six years later, at the age of 29, I end up at Notre Dame. And what led to that was from St. Gabe's, I went to the University of Pennsylvania for four years as an assistant under Dick Harder to help him to build Penn not into an Ivy League champion, but a national power. And then from Penn, I went to Fordham University for one year from 70, 71, took a team that was um, 10 and 15 the year before 
And I figure if I can get him to go 15 and 10, because we're going to have an eligible center named Paul Griswold at, at six foot nine, uh, then we can go to NIT and I turn this season around. Well, Paul Griswold tears his knee up. My next biggest guy is six five, and this is in November. So we end up starting four guards, a six five center, and we press everybody 94 feet. That same team went 26 and three. We beat Austin Carr and Notre Dame in Madison Square Garden in front of 19,500. And then the next Thursday night in the garden, we lose to Al McGuire, who was number two in the country in overtime. But then the Notre Dame job opened, I get it. And I come out here for 20 years and we had some great success. The most important stat with me at Notre Dame, 56 guys played for me. All 56 got their degrees and they're all doing in something life after basketball, being very successful, like Stan Wilcox is down in Indianapolis, number three in the NCAA. Scott Paddock ends up president of Chicago Speedway. John Paxson for 17 years run the Chicago Bulls after he played for the Bulls. Another guy named Jameer Jackson, uh, he ends up running Hertz Company uh, and doing very, very well for them as CFO. So, yeah, it was a, an interesting journey. And, and then, of course, coaching at Notre Dame was very special. You know, also, too, a couple of friends of mine, Kenny Barlow, who's been very successful, had an 18-year career overseas, and Scotty Hicks, who uh, was a pretty successful Indiana high school basketball coach and now athletic director at George Washington High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah, they were two great players and had great success here at Notre Dame as student athletes. Um, recruiting. Did you recruit the state of Indiana a lot or because of Purdue and Indiana being in there, was it kind of a, a kind of a rat race? Well, we can recruit Indianapolis, especially with the Catholic schools. And that's why we ended up with Barlow and Hicks. But uh, it was Bob Knight country and Gene Cady country. So we went national. And, you know, to show the exposure we had, if you go back and look at our 78 Final Four team, um, Dave Batten was 6'10 from Philadelphia. Duck Williams, a 6'2 guard from Washington, D.C. Um, uh, Jeff Carpenter was a guard from Chicago. He was captain of the team. Randy Hickson was Cincinnati. Bill Lambeer uh, was from Palos Verdes outside of L.A., but ends up in Toledo when his dad had a job change. But he came here. Bruce Flowers was 6'10". He was from Detroit. Rich Branding was from Huntington Beach, California. He was a sophomore guard. Bill Hanslick, 6'5", who played in the NBA. He was from Portland, Oregon, ended up in Wisconsin. And the freshmen were Orlando Woolridge from Louisiana, 6'9 uh, forward. Um, Scott Paddock was 6'10 from Florida. Woolridge, uh, Stan Wilcox, who we talked about. Um, and, and I look further even to other players on that team. Stan Wilcox was from Long Island. And um, I look at the whole success of that team being a national school, playing a national schedule, made Notre Dame one of the uh, – TV series of the weekend when we played the national powers like UCLA twice, Kansas, South Carolina, Marquette, DePaul, St. John's, um, you name it. And that's what made Notre Dame basketball so popular in the 70s with this national team from different parts of the country playing a national schedule. You're known as a great preparer of your teams, especially against number one teams. I mean, you knocked, you've knocked off seven number one teams, which is a feat that no one else has done. Well, Gary Williams did. Uh, he knocked off seven uh, when he coached at Maryland in the ACC. Well, Bob Knight was my mentor when it came to uh, defense and strategy, and Al McGuire was my mentor when it came to psychology with referees and players. And 
I just felt that uh, who I was and what I was, you just got to be yourself. But just be honest with your players. That's the most important thing. And they'll believe in you and they'll go out and do what you need to do in order to win games, especially in preparation and finding strengths and weaknesses of your opponents and going over it in practice. Now let's go play and get it done. And uh, the challenge you go after number one teams because we play them. You know, a little humor here, but you ever look back and wish that you didn't play the opening game in Assembly Hall in Bloomington, Indiana? Against my big brother, Bob Knight, losing that game 95, uh, 92, 65, whatever. We lost by 65 points. But we also lost the next week at UCLA to John Wooden by 56. And then a week later, when we played Kentucky and Freedom Hall in Louisville, Adolph Rupp in his last year, these got me down 31. They beat us by 18. But what was interesting that night after the game in Freedom Hall in Louisville, Adolph Rupp calls me up and he's getting ready to retire. And I'm just 29, getting the Notre Dame job. And I figure he's just calling me, saying, hang in there. Coach Phelps, you're young. You're going to get it done. It's Notre Dame. And as I leave Kentucky, I know what you're going through. Instead, he says, you know, Coach Fell, you lost Indiana by 65 a few weeks back. Then you selected by 56. And tonight, our team had you down 31. And we only lose by, we beat you by 18. He says, Coach Fells, what do you think's wrong with my team? Hate <laughs> off rough. And what's funny, too, is I read a quote from you was that, uh, during those early days, you liked uh, uh, going to practice and scrimmaging because you could win a game. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we didn't have any players. Austin Carr, Sid Callen, Carlos Jones all left. But then the next year, Brokaw and Shoemate and Clay, well, and then we get this guy eventually named Adrian Dantley, and that's when we came to power and we knocked off UCLA in 74. But in 73, uh, the end of that season, we ended up going to the NIT championship. And that was the beginning of us becoming a national power. Uh, even though we did not win that game against Virginia Tech. You know, I know you guys all put your pants on the same way, one leg at a time. But, you know, what was it like, you know, coming out on the court, coaching against those, uh, you know, like John Wooden and, and Coach Knight? Where, where did you, it, it was there just as you just had to have your own self-confidence? Was there, was there a little intimidation or how, how, how did you react or how did you uh, deal with that kind of? No, that's why you're in coaching, especially in Notre Dame. You're, you're a national school, national power, and you want those challenges, and you want to find a way to knock them off. And I don't care who it was. Was it uh, going back to those seven wins against John Wood and UCLA and Bill Walton, then their 88-game winning streak, and then it was uh, San Francisco uh, with Bill Cartwright back in 77. 78 was Al McGuire Marquette, and 80 was Ray Meyer and DePaul. Uh, what was interesting in the 70, uh, 80, 81, 82 season, we knocked off Kentucky. We were there number one. And then Virginia and Ralph Sampson that February were up in Chicago. So we beat two number one teams in the same year. And then in 87, it was Dean Smith in North Carolina who we knocked off. So you play those teams to win and you play those teams to put yourself in a position to be a national power and put yourself in a position to get a good seed in the NCAA tournament. And so it all comes together. So it had nothing to do with who you're coaching against because those guys were the best in the country. When it came to scheduling, were, were you in charge of a, a lot of the scheduling at the beginning of your career? Did it all. That's why we became Eddie Einhorn, who ran TBS. NBC, CBS, ABC did not televise college basketball. Eddie Einhorn, TVS, television sports. He started that in the New York area. He'd have the Ivy League game in a week 
or the ECAC game of the week, St. John's against Seton Hall. And he'd have games like ours, but at that time we only had six. So Roger Valdeseri, who just passed a few weeks ago, the best sports information director in the country, and the one reason why he helped me get the job at Notre Dame, uh, we sat with Eddie Einhorn in New Orleans. We're playing Tulane over Christmas and New Year's down there. And I said, what do we need to do to get this thing going nationally? And he said, you give me 10 games a week. I mean, 10 games uh, from the middle of January to the middle of March against national powers. And you'll be on every Saturday or Sunday. And that'll give you the national exposure to build Notre Dame basketball the way it was in Notre Dame football. So we got it done. And that's why you saw UCLA twice, Kansas, home and home, uh, South Carolina, when Frank McGuire, the famous coach in North Carolina, ended up going there, uh, North Carolina State, uh, Marquette, DePaul, St. John's, all these national powers. And we were on every weekend because of Eddie Einhorn and TBS. Coach, what kind of relationship or what kind of friendship did you have with Coach Knight? Oh, God, he's my big brother. Uh, actually, Linda and I just went down and visited him and Karen about two weeks ago this past uh, Wednesday uh, to spend an hour with him down in Bloomington. And it was just flashback memories for both him and I. But when he was an assistant at West Point, I got to know him when I was at Ryder and we became great friends. And then when he became head coach at the age of 24, became, because Tate Slots, the head coach, ended up going to Miami of Ohio, uh, I'd go watch practice at West Point or he and I would talk or I'd see him break down film and offenses and defenses and watch him teach defense. So we were just great friends and he became one of my strong mentors like Al McGuire did with the game of psychology and helped me become a complete coach. Hey, coach, when did the idea, you've written seven books, is that correct? 10 books. 10 books, sorry, sorry, I was off for you. Don't make me run laps. Well, <laughs> The ones you're forgetting, um, Tim Bray and I started doing it. We did uh, Basketball for Dummies. We did three series there. And then I did seven from that going way back when uh, Larry Keith wrote The Coach's World. And it, it grew from there. And Tim Bray, the last book we wrote was Father Hesburgh. He coached me because I have great love and respect for what Father Hesburgh was as a priest and the president of Notre Dame. But more importantly, he's a godfather of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, back in 57, it was... Uh, Eisenhower asking him to get, as president, get Hesburgh to come up with a civil rights act. And three men from the South and three from the North, they went up to Land of Lakes for a Notre Dame priest to have a retreat place. And they came up with a civil rights act, gave it to Ike, and then Ike gave it to Kennedy, who was going to use it to run for a second term, but he got assassinated. And then LBJ, President Johnson, got it passed in 64. And Father Hesburgh is a godfather of the civil rights act. And he was another one of my strong leaders and motivators behind the scene. Coach, it was interesting in doing my research for the show that um, uh, besides your first contract, all of your contracts were year to year. Is that correct? Um, after my first contract at Notre Dame, I never had a contract. Father Joyce and Father Hesburgh, just, that's just how they work. And, and you beat Coach Knight at West Point with Fordham and at Indiana, right? No, that was a home game at Fordham. Okay. But no, I'm, my lifetime record I got against Bob Knight, Bob Knight 16, Digger Phelps 5. So let's, let's put that to rest. Coach, what do you think about today's game and the transfer portal? Well, transfer, that's one thing. But the game itself, I, I think the three-point shot has sort of ruined the game because all you do is see teams come down. And after halftime, 
the play-by-play announcer comes up. Well, both teams combined are uh, 14 for 44, shooting threes in the first half. And then the other thing, the only offense they run is dribble screen. They come over, set a pick to the ball, and they dribble off that and one pass, two pass, two to three. And two weaknesses there, you don't see long shot, long rebound. You don't see enough offensive rebound with second chance points because the ball's coming off long and the big guys are still stuck under the basket. And the other thing is when you look at it, points off turnovers. There's not enough great defense to go out and put pressure on the ball. So you got 15, 16 turnovers against the opposition of which you score maybe 28 points. And that's what's really, I think, spoiled the game. The transfer rule, I just feel that, you know, if you transfer, that's your one thing. The most important thing is once you transfer, just make sure you graduate so that you've got something to do after the game of basketball leaves your life. And I read that, you know, of course, you have that great record of uh, how many players that you, you graduated your graduation rate, but uh, you also made them a job interview at times and also publicly speak so that, uh, you know, they were ready for the real world. That's true. But most importantly, I think I taught them leadership. Uh, and leadership has nothing to do with grades. It has everything to do with, one, creativity, two, being a risk taker, three, having the right street smarts, and four, knowing how to be a survival. You got those four characteristics. That's leadership. And give me an example, a guy named Mike Mitchell, who was from Cappuccino High School out in San Francisco. Uh, he was a freshman in 79. And when he played as a sophomore, he tore his knee up in his junior year, the same knee on the left side. His senior year, he made him captain. John Paxson was on that team. And we played San Francisco. And this is after we beat him with Cartwright when they're number one. They're still in the top 10. We beat him by about, I forget what it was. But anyhow, they were like number seven in the country. And Mike Mitchell that night, had 15 points in that game. He's the only guy in 20 years out of 56 players I gave the game ball to for what he went through. He graduated with a 2.5 in business, not a 3.5, not a 4.5, just a 2.5 in business uh, because of his leadership characteristics and what he went through. He ends up becoming president, president of Nestle's USA Beverage. That's what we're talking about with what goes on with life after basketball. Coach, what what was it that happened that made you decide to leave Notre Dame and you know retire retire from coaching basketball? Was it was it were you tired? Were you were you did you want to move on to a different uh, uh, portion of life? I spent twenty years at Notre Dame, and my great friend, who I got to know in the early seventies, George H. W. Book. We were friends through that whole time period, and at that time, when I came like nineteen ninety one, I was. Um, in my 20th year at Notre Dame, but he was still president of the United States and I wanted to work for him in the White House. And he'd offered me a job and I wanted to take it because it was known as Operation Weed and Seed. Weed meant to go into a neighborhood with as many federal, state, and local agents, take out the bad element because the neighborhood wanted that element out. The bridge from weed to seed was community policing, getting the police out of the squad cars to do neighborhood watch community policing with the people in the neighborhood that were, had their own team. And they combined the police getting out of squad cars and combining with the neighborhood watch people, they kept the bad element out of that neighborhood. And then to see, it was to take young people like high school dropouts, get them back into where they can go get a GED get them into a place where they can get uh, an opportunity to become an electrician. Don't worry about being an electrical engineer. You're not a failure. 
but as an electrician, you can make $70,000 a year. So I ran Operation Weed and Seed for the whole year for President Bush, implemented in a lot of areas around the country, empowered 100 U.S. attorneys in every state in this nation to empower Weed and Seed. We kicked it in. It was working until uh, President Clinton came in and got rid of it because he thought it was political. What leads you to, you know, be, there's a couple of places where you know, they have you the a top 25 basketball personalities of all time. What leads you to ESPN? What led me to ESPN? Uh, it was very simple. They came after me. I was doing some things for CBS in March with March Madness. And then job opened up at ESPN when Jimmy V died, when Jimmy Valvano passed. And, uh, he was a great friend of mine. His brother, Nikki, and I were roommates at Ryder College, and the Valvano family and I were very close. And with Dick Vitale and Jimmy V doing all those shows together, when he died, uh, and they knew that I knew him, but they knew what I did in CBS, they offered me a position, and that's what led me to ESPN to replace Jimmy Valvano. Did you have a ball with that? Did you have fun with that, or sometimes was it a kind of a pain in the butt? No, no, no. God, no. God, doing college basketball, and then we started college game day on the road where you had Reese Davis, Hubert Davis, myself, and Jay Billis. It was unbelievable. What got me out of it after 20 years of coaching and 20 years of, of doing ESPN, I got tired of traveling, especially in the winter, because if I had to go someplace, sometimes I'd have to leave on Thursday to get there before Friday because we're doing Friday shows. And then Saturday, we're doing shows, game day in the morning with a student body, and then the game that night. And then Sunday, I'd have to fly to Connecticut to Hartford to be ready to do Big Monday, which was ACC and Big Ten doubleheader. And after 10 years of doing game day and that, I just got tired of traveling. And so that's why I stopped doing it back in 2014. Coach, what are some of the young coaches that you're kind of impressed with in today's game? Oh, I think there's a lot of them out there, and I don't want to get specific because I don't want to hurt anybody, but uh, they really do a good job, and, and I think these guys today are the way the game is and how it's being played, and you get a chance to get to the Final Four like Mark Few seems to do every year with that little school called Gonzaga up in eastern Washington. He's the best example of saying somebody that can get it done and how he's been in his whole career, and that'd be a great role model for young coaches to follow. What place did you enjoy, did you really enjoy going to coach or to play a basketball game? And be it even uh, uh, in uh, college or in uh, when you were in college or while you coached? Well, probably I would say the toughest place to play was Reynolds Coliseum at NC State. And the reason why, the court was right next to the bleachers. There was two sets of bleachers behind your bench. Your feet were actually on the out-of-bounds line. And there'd be like 4,000 students, 2,000 on each side of the court. And then the rest of the crowd would be in the end zone. That was a real tough place to play. But obviously, I love Pauley Pavilion because we were the first team where UCLA played their home games on their campus in L.A. Uh, we were the first non-conference team to beat them at Pauley Pavilion. And then we became the first team ever to win four straight at Pauley Pavilion. And... Uh, they had a friend of the program named Sam Gilbert, who was a good friend of mine. And during the 84 Olympics, which I was doing with Keith Jackson because I knew the international teams because we played them, 
it was a Sunday and um, I think our women's team was playing China and, and he was there at the game and he said, Digger, I want you to take the no name job. He said, I'll give you 250,000 cash to take the job or take the UCLA job. He said, I'll give you 250,000 cash to take the job. I said, no, Sam, I'm staying at UCLA, but Sam, you can do me one favor. I'm staying at Notre Dame, uh, but you can do me a favor at Pauley Pavilion. With those 10 national championship pennants in Pauley Pavilion, can you hang up one big green shamrock with our scores at Pauley Pavilion because it's our second home court for Notre Dame at Pauley Pavilion? And he just laughed. That's awesome. Coach, Coach, if I was in the car, this is going to be a weird question, but hey, you know, I'm the host, so I get to ask him. If I'm in the car with you and, and we're done chatting and it's time to put on some music, what kind of music would we be listening to in your car? Classical music. I love it. It's just really refreshing to see how these great people have put together the classics and how they wrote it and how they come up with the right instruments. So it's refreshing. It's uh, time for me to melt down. Um, I've got it on, on all the time in the house and all the time in my car. What kind of movies does Coach Digger Phelps watch? Haven't been to many lately. Uh, saw Top Gun. That's the only one I've seen probably in about two years. So you, so you get out of ESPN. What do you, what, what does Coach Phelps do in retirement? <laughs> what, what are you doing with me right now? <laughs> we can pay for it because you're not paying me. <laughs> you're keeping the money. Yeah, you make the money and I just talk. But more importantly, I live two blocks from campus. I love the spirituality of that campus and what Father Hesper did as a priest. This place is very special when it comes to the spirituality that I really go for in my life. And I'll do 40 minute walks either in the neighborhood or over in the campus. And yet, you know, we'll still go to all the home games of basketball. Uh, football weekends are interesting, but more importantly, it's just hanging out here in Notre Dame and this low pressure uh, and controlling my life rather than have people control me. Now, my wife's going to come home today and want to know where this money is that uh, you talk about that I'm getting. I don't know. The other thing I do that I really love and enjoy, Leroy Neiman, a famous sports artist in New York who's passed. Uh, he was a famous artist for a lot of years. And back in about 1990, I met him on a bus going to a White House function with his wife, Janet. And I tell him how much I enjoyed his painting, especially when Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell were a big influence, and that's part of the boxing world. And he said to me, you should paint. And I looked at him, he said, yeah, anybody can paint. They just don't think they can paint. So I come back here and there was an artist in town named Shara Sosh. So for the last 30 years, uh, I've been doing painting and I usually do two a month, uh, starting in April and finishing early November because it's too cold in my studio over the garage. And, in the winter months, but uh, I really enjoy that. And it's really relaxing. And it's funny, uh, we were just out in the Bay Area this weekend. We went to, uh, to uh, Lake Tahoe for the American Celebrity um, Century uh, Golf Tournament uh, that I used to play. And I stopped playing in that in 2014. So I haven't been out there in eight years. And Gary Quinn, who's vice president of NBC Sports for a couple of years, because they do Notre Dame football too. And he's in charge of that. He says, come on, you got to get back. The guys want to see you. So Linda and I went out this, this past week, and that's where we were for about seven days out west, and uh, saw a lot of guys, uh, about 30 of them as they'd come off the greens. Linda would tell me who's coming, and I'd wait for them and shake hands, and we'd hug and reminisce about the old days. But 
it's a sunset. It's not just in Lake Tahoe, but obviously in the Bay Area uh, where her brother lives upstairs and looking outside. And I paint a lot of skies and sunset and I paint a lot of mountains because of uh, the wild, wild west. So I really into art. Leroy Neiman's the reason why. And that's another part of my life that's uh, getting a lot of playtime. Coach, are those your paintings that are in the background uh, uh, that people are watching? Yes, they are. Very nice. Now, I, I also, during my research, uh, you don't have a flip phone anymore, right? Yes, I do, actually. It's right here. Started <laughs> it's, so it's true. Of course it's true. That's awesome. I don't text. I don't not, I've never touched the computer. Um, I don't email. If you text me, I call you back because I want to hear your voice. So, so I'm pretty impressed that you're on Twitter then. No, Linda does this. <laughs> Coach, do you sell your paintings? No, I just, uh, sometimes I give them to friends, but that's about it. Legendary Coach Digger Phelps, Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, I, I know your time is uh, precious. I know you just turned 82. Is that correct? Happy belated birthday, by the way. Uh, 81. Thanks a lot, Billy. <laughs> nice turnover, Billy. <laughs> I'm going to run some suicides when I get done with this. But coach, thank you so much for spending some time with this. People are going to enjoy this. Uh, it's fantastic. And what a great experience to chat with you and uh, meet you. My pleasure. You take care and stay healthy. Thank you, coach.